Thanks for tuning in to the Westbridge Church Podcast, where our mission is to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ. We'd love for you to check out our website, westbridgedanville.com, for additional resources. Here's today's message by Pastor Tyson Harrell. Thank you for being with us today. As Wes said, if this is your first time, we'd love the chance to meet you back at the desk in the foyer there after the services, as we uh, are grateful you've chosen to worship with us today. In the 1930s, radio broadcasting transformed how people got information. Prior to that, it was newspapers and word of mouth. And in the 1930s, Particularly, they had to come up with a way to help people kind of see what they were talking about because for the first time, they didn't have images to convey their message. It was only through the power of word, which radio had an incredible outreach, but it, it led to the popularization of taglines in marketing. One of the most common being, uh, there's a, a lot of them that are still in existence today, but a tagline had to be something that was memorable It had to be something that would convey the brand's message so that it would stick with you. And one of the oldest, most recognizable, and also one of the most continual running slogans is from Wheaties, which is the breakfast of champions, right? You know it. And uh, it it lends itself to that if you eat Wheaties, um, you're going to be a champion, Right There's a couple others I brought along today. Uh, All state, you're in good hands, and supposedly they're going to take care of you if things go awry. Uh, Nike, just do it. That uh, no matter what you do, you got to have Nikes on because that's going to be the only way you're going to be able to accomplish what you want to do. Um, Taco Bell, think outside the bun. This one was not as well known as some of their other ones, but this one conveyed the message that it wasn't your typical burger joint. It was Taco Bell. Our own church has a slogan as well or a tagline, which is live fully, live free. We don't use it as much as we used to, but it conveys the message out of Colossians that if you want to live a full life and you want to live a life free from not only sin, but also uh, everything else, then you need to follow Jesus. If I was going to give a tagline to the book of Mark, it would probably be something like this. Jesus, son of God, servant of all. Son of God, servant of all. Now, you could probably come up with your own tagline for the book of Mark. There's probably a lot of good ones. But if you were with us last week, Pastor John started with the central text of Mark, and it kind of seems strange to start a, a series in the middle of the book, but it's so important to understand that Jesus was son of God and servant of all. And you see that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Today, we're going to go back to the beginning, though, and for the next 12 weeks, we're going to be in the book of Mark. And so if you want to flip over to Mark chapter 1, that's where we're going to spend most of our time today in the book of Mark. Now, Mark is a short, fast-paced gospel uh, account. It moves very quickly. It's easy to read. For those of you who don't like to read, uh, this would be the one book of the Bible you should be able to handle. Uh, It's fast-paced. It doesn't take a lot of explanation. It highlights as Jesus' ministry and why he's the Son of God. And I'd encourage you, if you've never read your Bible before, start with Mark this week and just follow us along as we go throughout the series over the next 12 to 13 weeks. If you remember, Mark is the protege of Peter, right? He was Peter's protege, and he's often referred to in Scripture as John Mark. He is also Barnabas's cousin. He's from a well-to-do family that most likely housed a church in their house. So they had a big enough home that could, could handle a number of people. And he records the eyewitnesses of Peter and other eyewitnesses in the book of Mark. And so we're going to learn a little bit more about Mark as we talk today in Mark chapter 1. If you would, read along with me, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that 
But in Mark chapter 1, it says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending like him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark begins with his own sort of tagline in verse 1 when he says, It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So he says, look, it's Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And he says that the beginning of the good news. Now, when he uses good news, or your translation may say gospel, which means good news, what he's not talking about are the books of the, of the gospels like we typically think of, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's talking about a royal proclamation, the beginning of an announcement about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. For the Jew, and even for the, the Greek who would have understood this, this would have been a common language to use as a royal pronouncement to the start of a reign of Caesar or to the royal pronouncement of a king who's come. And Mark starts his gospel different than the other people start the gospels. If you remember, right, Matthew starts with genealogy. He says this is who Jesus' family is. Uh, Luke starts with the birth of, of John the Baptist and then Jesus as well. Uh, John really starts with the beginning of everything and tries to help you wrap your mind around that. But Mark starts with this royal proclamation. He wants to make something very clear that this good news that he's talking about is different than all the other good news because it's about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That this particular story that he's going to unfold over the next 16 chapters is a story that's so incredibly different than any other story that they've heard before. Keep in mind, Mark's original audience was not Jewish people, it was Romans. And he's trying to help them put the puzzles together about what and who Jesus really is. But this story isn't a normal story, it's not a safe story at all. For those of you who grew up in the 80s and 90s, there was a, a movie called A Never-Ending Story. And if you remember, it's about a boy who makes his way into a bookstore because some kids were picking on him. And he goes into the bookstore and he finds this magical book called The Never-Ending Story. And what does the guy tell him? He says, you can read this story, but this isn't a safe story. If you watch the rest of the movie, it's why you're afraid of quicksand still to this day. 
But what happens? He's transported into the story. He becomes a part of the story, and the rest of the movie is the unfolding of that. That is the case for us in Mark as well. Mark isn't necessarily written about us, but we can see ourselves in the book of Mark. We can see people who have doubts and concerns. We can see people who are trying to wrap their heads around who Jesus is. And so this story that Mark is about to tell, this proclamation about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is something that's worth paying attention to. It's something worth diving into because you're going to see yourself in the story that Mark unfolds about Jesus. There's three things that you're going to need to know today about Jesus that Mark is trying to understand. And the first one is the proclamation of Jesus. He's trying to help us understand the proclamation of Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah, the one who would rescue us, the Son of God. Um, Side note, as you're reading your Bible, if you notice, there's some like subscripts down to the side And it'll say like Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. If you look at the Son of God, though, it says some manuscripts may not include Son of God. If you look down at the bottom of your Bible, there's this. Now, just to help you unpack that a little bit, um, sometimes when we go to have the translation that we have today, it's it's the translation we have because it's it's manuscript after manuscript after manuscript. And as we've gotten further out from time, we continue to evaluate manuscripts. And sometimes some of the manuscripts only had Jesus the Messiah. Now, here's why that's not that big of a deal, because later in Mark's book, he makes it perfectly clear that he's the son of God. But just trying to be accurate, you'll see that the the writers, uh, and as we've translated the New Testament from Greek and portions of it in Aramaic, there are some manuscripts they've found that didn't have that. Now, the oldest ones do, but some of the newer ones didn't. It could be a scribal error. It could be something else. Conversely, if you look at the end of the book of Mark, you're going to see a section of chapter 16 that is all in italics. And the earliest manuscripts don't have that portion, but some of the later ones do. So it doesn't have to wreck your faith, the fact that that says it may not be in some manuscripts. It just is trying to be upfront and acknowledge some of them have it, some of it doesn't. Doesn't really matter, though, because here in about another 10 verses, Mark's going to impact the same idea that he's indeed the son of God. Take a look at verse two. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight paths for him. Mark quotes portions of Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah. And some 700 years before it was prophesied that when the Messiah would come on the scene, there would be one who would come from the wilderness to set the paths of a straight path so that he might come. And what Mark is saying is Jesus is this guy. Mark is saying that John the Baptist has showed up in the wilderness to make straight paths for him to be here. Keep in mind, Mark's trying to make the connection for these people to help them understand. And he says that he comes from the wilderness. Mark highlights that this messenger doesn't come to kings or officials. He starts with the lowest of the low. He goes out to the outcast. Keep in mind, in Jewish society, what would they do with the people who were sick, who were unclean? or who are different from them, what did they do? They put them in the wilderness. And that's where John the Baptist starts his ministry. That's where the proclamation of good news begins. And that's where we see the story begin. Some of you have bought into the idea that you're too far gone for Jesus. Um, you don't really know Jesus then. Because this is how he chooses to announce his kingdom, is with the lowest of the low, out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of the sticks, so to speak, Oftentimes I hear people say, well, I was going to do that, but once I clean up my life, and let me just tell you, you can't clean up your life enough. You won't be able to clean up your life enough, and only Jesus can do that, and it's interesting that he starts the good news, the proclamation about the king, the proclamation about Jesus starts in the wilderness, not in the temples, not in the government centers, 
not in the places of influence, but among the lowest and among the meek. Take a look at verse 4. It says, So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John says that he came so that he would appear in the wilderness, or Mark says that he appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, this idea of turning away from evil and turning towards God. Another definition of repentance would be turning from your sin and yourself and turning towards God. That's the message our culture needs. We've adopted that we're really not that bad of people, but we can do it all ourselves. And you notice it from everywhere in our culture. You show up to the coffee shop and you get a mug that tells you how special you are and how incredibly awesome you are. And while I'm sure that's true to an extent, there's a limit to the level of specialness and the level of awesomeness that you have. In that, you can't do anything to save yourself. So what our culture needs is a repentance from ourself or a turning from ourself and a turning back to God. But it's more than that. Some of us maybe have got that figured out, but maybe the things that you thought would bring joy and satisfaction and hope and, and healing and leave those aside and go and follow Jesus. And John starts this out in the wilderness among these people who had nothing left to give, right? They're, they're out there in the wilderness. They've come out because they've heard this guy is in weird clothing and he's making these strange proclamations and they come out to see him and his, his thing is, you know what you need to do? If we're going to prepare the kingdom, if we're going to prepare the way for Jesus to be here, you know what the first call is? Repentance. And so he calls them to confess their sins and then to be baptized. Uh, this would have been a little bit differently from what normal Jewish culture had. Most Jewish cultures, they would use a ceremonial washings, but they didn't really use baptism in a sense that we know it today. The only time they would use baptism in the sense that we know it today is when there was a a convert to Judaism. And I can't imagine this was a popular thing because if you were going to be a convert to Judaism, especially guys, heads up, you had to be circumcised. Nobody's lining up for that probably. Then you had to commit to, to, to being a part and, and understanding and living under the Torah. And then you had to be baptized. So he's calling Jews and what would normally be a transformative acceptance into the Jewish community, he's calling them to go and be baptized. Not in the sense of that that's going to cleanse their sins or save them from their sins, but it's going to be a picture of what needed to happen. Keep in mind, he always starts with repentance, which proves that what the real issue was for the kingdom of God getting started, what the real issue is for the kingdom of God continuing to exist for us today is something that has to change in here first. And then there's a picture of it that it's, it's cleaned in baptism. And so that's what John says. He goes, this is how we're going to prepare the way. And it says the whole countryside comes out confessing their sins. The first thing you need to be reminded about repentance is that it's for everyone. It's for everyone. And a lot of times we have a lot of shame around this idea or a lot of, we want to hold this off at a distance. This is for all of us, right? We all should be in the, in the mode of repentance, in the heart of repentance, He's calling them to leave what they've trusted in and encounter God in the wilderness. Now, here's why this is so interesting with the way Mark does it. Mark isn't here to shame you today. You may feel shame, but that's not coming from Mark. You may feel a a little bit of weight behind this, but I want you to understand Mark is like you and like me. And the reason I say that is if you know anything about the history of how Mark plays out, he's Peter's protege. He goes on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and then he deserts them halfway through it. And when he deserts them, it, Paul throws them under the bus in Scripture for a couple different times, once in Colossians and once in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 12 to 15. 
But by the end of his life, in what Paul writes in 2 Timothy, he says, make sure you bring me Mark because he's useful for me in my ministry. You see Mark, this guy that absolutely blows it, deserts him. It literally breaks up the dream team of evangelists with Barnabas and Paul. And then it, he, he changes. He repents. He turns. And so if you feel anything today, I hope you feel as you read the book of Mark, this is a guy that you can relate with. A guy that's done really, really good at times. A guy that's blown it at times and everywhere in between. But he finished his life well. He finished his life well and got to the point where God could use him again. Verse 6 says that John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He looked like a prophet. He acted like a prophet. If you know anything about the Jewish prophets of old, they were strange individuals used by God, which would bring great hope for some of us, right? Great hope. But he looked like a prophet. But here's the thing I want you to notice is that as we look at the proclamation of Jesus, he does this through this strange guy named John. The second thing you're going to note about Jesus from the book of Mark chapter 1 is the identity of Jesus. And we see that in verse 7. In verse 7, it says the following. It says, and this was his message. Almost as Mark is trying to help us be like, don't worry about the honey. Don't worry about the strange hair. Don't worry about the weird clothes. This is what's most important. And in verse 7, he says, this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says that after me comes one. Keep in mind the proclamation of Jesus. He's trying to prepare the way for Jesus. After me comes one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Slaves were allowed to do a lot of things to serve masters, but even in their culture, they typically wouldn't untie sandals. So what Mark is saying is not only is he lower than, he's lower than slaves, and that that's how esteemed the one who comes after him is. That he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. He goes on to say in verse 8, I am I'm going to baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not some special baptism, as our charismatic friends would claim, that this is some extra thing that you need, right? What he's talking about is he says, John comes and baptizes you with water, but Jesus is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's three rules when it comes to reading the Bible. Context, context, and context. You look at the context of what is he talking about. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about repent and believe the good news. What he's talking about is that Jesus would come to baptize us with the Holy Spirit in a way that... Only through the Holy Spirit are you going to realize your need for God. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit are you going to be able to regenerate or be able to be some, a new creation. And what he's saying is that John had this incredible opportunity to call people to prepare the way of the Lord, to baptize them for the forgiveness of their sins. But unfortunately, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't long enough. It wouldn't hold. So he says, one coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 44 says that when the Messiah will come, he will bring with him the Holy Spirit. And that's what Mark is talking about when he says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the first marker of his identity, right, the identity of Jesus is his power, right? He's, can't even untie his sandals. The second one is his obedience, that he was willing to do whatever God would call him to do. Take a look at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son with whom I loved and I am well pleased. Jesus is born in Galilee. 
He goes out to the wilderness to be baptized by John and to spend time for 40 days. And he goes back out eventually as well. And so he kind of zigzags across what would be modern day Israel. It's interesting though that Jesus is baptized. And if you notice, he's baptized, but there's no mention that he confessed his sins because he didn't have any sins to confess. So the question becomes, okay, well, why on earth would Jesus have been baptized? If you know from other gospel accounts, specifically in Matthew, um, John and John, John doesn't even want to baptize him. He says, I don't, I don't want to baptize you. And Jesus says, well, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. I think that Jesus's baptism was for two reasons. One, the commission for his ministry. And number two, it was acting in accordance with God's plan. The identity of Jesus is he was obedient to God's plan. Does it make sense to us that God would start in the wilderness and he would prepare the way with people who don't typically fit in? And then he would call people to baptism and then he would call Jesus to, like, does any of this make sense? No. Does anything God does make sense? Very rarely in our understanding. But Jesus says, no, I've got to be baptized. I've got to start this way. And he was willing to, to fall in line with what God had said. So it was to commission him for ministry and also to act in accordance with God's plan. And you see the sky opens up and literally it says that it's tore open there in verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I loved and with you I am well pleased. We see the Trinity right there on display for us. We see God the Father. We see the spirit descending. We see Jesus. And we find out his identity that he's God's son. So first you see the proclamation of Jesus. It's from the wilderness. It's by a guy named John. You see the identity of Jesus, that he's a powerful one who is the son of God. And then it says in verse 12, at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. You're gonna notice this phrase over and over and over again in the book of Mark, at once or immediately. And it's just that rapid fire successions of events to show you that he's the son of God. And even in his temptation, Mark's trying to help us understand that he's still the son of God. I find it interesting that just after God tells everyone that this is my son with whom I love and I'm well pleased, what's the first thing that happens? He goes off to temptation. And what does Satan go after when he comes after Jesus? He goes after his identity. If you're really God's son, throw yourself off of this hill. If you're really God's son, turn this into food. If you're really God's son, and let me just tell you, if if Satan came after Jesus and his identity, he's coming after you and your identity as well. Not in your gender or not in what you do for a career or not any of those things, but who are you? Jesus understood that he was God's son. I hope you understand that you are one of God's children as well, that he wants a relationship with you And that's what happens. It says immediately he was tempted and goes after. And then Mark does this a couple different times. We're gonna notice this, um, especially later in the book, like chapter 13 and 14, especially. He just starts throwing in phrases that you're just like, there had to be more to the story. Like take a look at verse 13. He was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And then he just says, and he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now, have you ever hung out with angels or have you ever been with wild animals? and not wanting to shoot them. I know some of you enjoy just being out with the wild animals and shooting them, but this was not, doesn't lend itself to that's what they were doing. It is not a proof text for hunting, although hunting's probably fine. What is going on? He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. I think once again, Mark is trying to show only the son of God 
could have the angels attend him and have wild animals respect him. We know from other prophecies from the Old Testament that one day in the new kingdom that the lion will lay down with the lamb. I think that only happens because the king is here. I think that only happens because Mark is trying to help us see that he is the son of God. So you have the proclamation of Jesus. You have the identity of Jesus. And lastly, we're going to see the authority of Jesus. Take a look at verse 14. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. So John is put in prison. If you remember from other gospel accounts, the reason that John gets put in prison is because Herod, the ruler of the day, took his brother's wife, and John said that wasn't a good idea. What happens? He gets put in prison. He's in prison for a time, and then eventually he gets beheaded because of his bold stance around what was right. And it says that after that happens, Jesus goes back into Galilee. So Jesus was in Galilee, then he was back in the wilderness, and then he, now he's back in Galilee, and he starts to proclaim the good news himself. So John starts the beginning of the chapter, and he's talking about prepare the way, get everything ready, because the king is coming. We find through Jesus' baptism and interaction with God the Father that, no, this is indeed the Son of God. The king is here. And then we see Jesus and his authority start to to lay out what the kingdom would be like. After John was put in prison, Jesus went in proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. He brings the good news that you can be right with God. The time has come. The kingdom is near. Those are only phrases that the king would know. They're only phrases that the king would be able to say. And he does so with authority because he is the king. Wherever the king is, that's where the kingdom is. And he says, look, it's here. It's near. Repent and believe. He could have said anything, by the way. He could have said, "Um, the kingdom is near, uh, so get the army ready. Doesn't say that. That would have been what I would have thought would have been a good idea. Uh, He could have said, clean yourselves up, prepare for the party, schedule the band, um, get all the friends you can and come, let's celebrate. But he doesn't. His response to the kingdom is near is repent and believe. Now, why is it so hard that in our culture, and especially in our own minds, the call of repent and believe seems like such a backwards way of setting up the kingdom? Because it is a backwards. It is what we just sang about, that the the kingdom of God is backwards. I think of this phrase I heard years ago, that the end of your pride is the beginning of, of forgiveness. And if you want to know why it's so hard to repent, it's because of you. And it's because of me. If you want to know why it's so hard to start the process of forgiveness, it's because it's where the end of our pride is. That's where the beginning of forgiveness starts. When we were able to finally admit that, look, we may be special, but we can't do anything about our sin. Or when we're finally able to admit that we were wrong. Is anyone like signing up for that? No, no one likes signing up for it, which makes it so hard, which makes what Jesus said so consequential, but also so incredibly tough because you realize that you need a savior. And you realize you need somebody to step in on your behalf. I remember years ago, a couple years ago, we were whitewater rafting with some men from our trip. And our particular boat got loaded a little heavy in the front end, and I happened to be in the back end. 
And we made it through the first couple of rapids and it was no big deal. But we got to this one particular set of rapids that was just succession of rapid after rapid after rapid. We hit the first one, our boat buckles and throws all of us out. And I remember, the first thing I remember is hitting the bottom of the river floor with a rock going right up through my back and being like, oh, that hurt. Um, that's probably not what I said. Um, and I remember popping up and it's in the middle of this rapid and there's helmets everywhere because our whole boat got tossed. And there's other boats going by like, hey, good luck, keep going. <laughs> my paddle, I see my paddle, but my paddle isn't going to do me any good. I've got a life jacket, thankfully, and a helmet, but it isn't going to do me any good because we're in the middle of a succession of rapids. And as we make it through the first rapid, the only thing I can think of is get my feet up so I don't die on the way through the next rapid. And so that's what we do, we go through the next rapid. We go through the next rapid. I'm still trying to swim my hardest, which I'm not a great swimmer, but I feel like I do good enough at swimming. But then finally we get through the third rapid and suddenly all of a sudden I feel myself being lifted out of the water, thrown into the back of a boat and somebody's saying, where's your, where's your boat? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just trying to survive here. For many of us, that's what life is like. We've tried making it through the rapids on our own. We've tried everything that we know how. It wasn't about me swimming harder. It wasn't about me finding my paddle, although that was helpful. It wasn't about any of that. I needed somebody to come along and to save me. And the sooner at the end of your pride is the beginning of forgiveness, the sooner you realize that, the better off you'll be. And I think for some of us, we've heard that message before and we're like, yeah, I did that one time. No, this has to be something you do for the rest of your life. You need somebody to save you. And yes, there has to be a moment where you need to decide what Jesus has called you for, but there also has to be a moment almost repeatedly for all of us to remember that we can't do it on our own. We've been trying to follow Jesus in our own power. And I think Mark would tell us today that uh, you're just going to be up a creek, literally, without a paddle or a boat or anything. No one else could help. I needed somebody to come save me. And thankfully, there was a guide in another boat who knew what to do. He yanked me out. He threw me back in the boat and got ready for the next rapid where a couple rapids later, we did the whole exercise again. (laughs) I thought I was good at rafting. Maybe you thought you were good at life. But what we need is Jesus's help. He calls us to repent and believe. And so for many of you, you've probably done that already, right? You've recognized that you got to turn from your own desires, your own wants, your own ways, and you need to follow Jesus. For some of you, you haven't, and that's, that's okay. The good news is you can do that today. What's it mean to repent and believe? I think first off, it means that you admit that you need a savior, that you have sin that separates you from God and that you need a savior. And what he's calling you to do is not only to admit that, but then to believe that Jesus and his sacrifice are the only way to make that right. And then to commit to follow him in everything, right? A belief that changes your life and the direction of your life, you will start to realize that at the end of pride is the beginning of forgiveness. And you'll start to realize that the way that we follow Jesus is to continue to repent and to continue to believe. We've made this so much harder than it has to be. We've made this so much more difficult on ourselves as we find ourselves battling against the same things that Jesus freed us from. And so Mark lays out what Jesus said there. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. For everyone in this room, repentance is is for us. 
right? And this is uh, certainly a salvation call for, for those of you who maybe don't know who Jesus is, but for all of us, repentance is for everyone. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses them and renounces them finds mercy. First John 1 9 says, confess your sins to one another because God is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Sorry, James is the one that says, confess your sins to one another and you will be what? Healed. I don't know how that works. I've never understood that, but I can tell you that confession and repentance are closely linked. And that when we share those with each other, there is a, a healing that indeed takes place. So today, I thought the best way to wrap up our time through the first part of the first chapter of the book of Mark is to just have a time of repentance, a time of turning. Maybe it's something you've trusted in. Maybe it's yourself. And so we're going to close our time today with just a time of repentance, give you a few moments just to pray and to seek God and to ask what there might be. I guarantee you, if you ask that in sincerity, God will supply that in more ways than you can understand. But for some of you, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you recognize that you're called to admit that you need a relationship and to repent and to follow him. Uh, Here in a minute, when we sing a song, there's gonna be a bunch of other people that are leaving um, because they have to go out and serve in other parts of the building. If you wanna talk to somebody, I'm gonna be back at the prayer and care room. I'd love to tell, tell you what it means to follow Jesus. And then for some of you, maybe you've made that decision and you just haven't been baptized yet. And I love that Jesus... He never calls us to do something he doesn't show us how to do first. And even in something as baptism, like, did Jesus need to be baptized? No. Did he do it, though, because that's what God's plan was? Yeah. And so if you want to be baptized, I'd encourage you to come talk to me or one of the other people at guest services. Uh, Let's do it next week. Like, why wait? Um, So let me just give you a few moments to to close our time. Wes will uh, finish up our time in prayer and then lead us in a song. If you'd like to talk, be happy to meet you in the back. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to talk with someone about today's message, you can contact us through our website, westbridgedanville.com. And we'd love to help you take your next step in your walk with Jesus.